Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by online coach Brocken Crocker. Brocken and I had a great conversation around how to prepare for the demands of races, and more importantly, how to really work on our weaknesses, but not letting our strengths decline. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Bracken, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's a little muggy today, so I'm going to be sweating during this thing. Other than that, I'm hanging in there. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I've been on a lot of calls this morning, but all really good and productive calls. So having a good Friday. Good. Athlete calls or business calls? What type? Well, both. Some colleagues, some clients, some potential clients. So it's been a good mix. Have you been able to hang on to a good amount of clients during this pandemic? I have. I haven't really lost anyone. Um, There were a handful that were going to start with me and then the pandemic hit. So they lost their jobs or temporarily lost their jobs and couldn't. But anyone current, I actually kept. Congratulations. So yeah, I was super excited. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's reassuring. How about you? Kind of same. I'd say, honestly, for every one I lost, there's at least one, if not more, who suddenly still get their job, but they work from home and they have a lot of time. So turnover has been in my favor, fortunately. Yeah, nice. I had definitely have gained some of the process too. I just people, um, I think it's, I think it's good for you and me being online that people are realizing that they can work with people online. They don't need that in-person thing. And um, so I think there's a lot of benefits on that aspect with what's going on. Absolutely. A couple of years ago, my wife and I faced that question of, do we open a gym or do we go fully online? And obviously we move fully online. So we're, we feel super uh, fortunate to be like this, but I wonder what it's going to do to once this is done, is the in-person training just going to plummet or never recover? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I've gone back and forth for several years on opening a facility or not. And after all this, I'm like, I think I'm leaning towards that not for good. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of a gym is so enticing, but the realities of if it goes under or if you struggle, man, leases get really tough really quickly. Yeah, they do. There's, I've seen a handful of posts on social media, um, either from gyms themselves or athletes from gyms that handful of CrossFit gyms and other boutique gyms have been, have shut their doors for good. Yeah, it's scary. It is definitely. Well, let's dive into, I guess, first off, who are you? We've already opened up with you are an online coach, but who are you and what specifically do you do? Who do you work with? Well, I'm Bracken Crocker. <laughs> I'm a 33-year-old father of three. Um, I, I'm a lifelong dabbler in athletics. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've been an obstacle course racer. And for the 20 prior to that, um, mainly endurance sports, kind of my calling card. And made the switch from coaching high school uh, track and cross country and basketball to fully online endurance coaching about six years ago and that's that's kind of it now kids my own competitive racing and training and and coaching online so prior to ocr were you primarily running when it comes to endurance or 
Yeah, yeah, almost entirely. I ran track and one year of cross country in college, one very mediocre year. Um, but tr- I loved track and field once I got to college. And I was really fortunate that OCR took off the year I graduated. I graduated in 2010. Okay. And um, did my first race in 2011. So I didn't really have that weird waiting transition area post collegiately. I got to jump right into OCR. Um, while I was teaching and coaching other sports and just kind of hit the ground running rather than wait around and try to find what was next. That's awesome. I definitely had that waited around and find what was next scenario because I was done. I finished undergrad in 2003. Okay. So then from there, I was definitely trying to find what to do for a while. <laughs> That's tough. And you hope that you just don't have to undo years of damage at when you do find what's next. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to, I guess I want to start first with the, when you were in person coaching cross country and track. Um, I know high school kids are different, definitely different than adults, but at the same time, we think of programming overall, the same structure and that sort of thing. Um, how did that kind of get you prepared for what you're doing now online? You know, I've never been asked that. (laughs) I I really like that question. And it's interesting that the the commonalities between the two are are pretty apparent that you get a freshman, sophomore, junior kid, even a senior sometimes who oftentimes are coming over because their friends got them into it or because some other sport didn't work out and they've never really run before they're really eager or they're really afraid, but either way, they're pretty enthusiastic about when the workout starts, do it. And so half of it is getting them into running, teaching them the groundwork and getting them as much as they can do safely. But the other half is holding them back from racing every day at practice and, and developing bad habits or moving too fast too soon. And I feel like that's exactly what we're doing with our, you know, young professional, middle-aged, even, you know, master's athletes who are coming over either just finding running or getting into it because something else failed, whether it was a previous sport or, you know, the midlife crisis that tipped them towards OCR oftentimes has that story. So again, teaching them the basics, but holding them back from every day is hammer day, especially if you're you're coming from a different sport. And, and the, the process is very similar. I found I think it's really hard to get people to back off and understand that it's like, you don't have to go all out 100% every single day that you can get a very solid workout, very fatiguing workout just by doing like isolation accessory work or just slowing things down a little bit. Um, And I don't know if it's because it's boring to do, if it's just not mentally stimulating. I don't, you know, I don't really know what gets in people's heads, but it's hard to get people to actually do that. It is. And we live in a, I mean, I'm sure every time of history was like this to some extent, but we live in a very aggressive time in physical training history where like the video on demand workouts are designed to basically hurt you as much as you can in 30 minutes. Otherwise you're not going to purchase the next day or in person training with a a trainer, you have to give them a workout. Otherwise, like they're not paying you for a recovery day or for easy aerobic. They're paying you to get sweaty and burning and running just doesn't work that way where you shouldn't leave every day spent 
And so that it's really tough to tell someone you're making process, you're making like sequential gains following the correct process by not hurting every day. And it's, it's difficult. It's really, that's the hardest buying I've found is committing to not overreaching on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, I guess when it comes to programming conversations, how do you get someone to back down? Obviously you program accordingly, but how do you really control them from hitting that run at 80% when you want them to hit mm-hmm. it at, you know, that 60 or 50%? Well, f- you, what, anytime I start with somebody new, we start with what we're doing right now, a face-to-face video call. And we have at least two of these before they even start training. And I use that to kind of plant the seed. I, I lead with my own story, having run middle distance in college under two different coaches where we were doing a minimum of three very intense workouts a week and then racing each other on our easy runs. You know, my own historical story that I can show of what did and didn't work as I progressed in my own training philosophy and um, and then the stories of the great athletes who aren't me and are maybe better or more well-known that maybe they'll take that instead of my story and latch onto it. And then I prescribe uh, 80-20 training by Matt Fitzgerald to um, everyone I train with. I say, you know, if no matter what you do, whether you stay with me or not, read this book or listen to it because after the first four chapters, you'll be hooked and you'll believe it. So I start with leading with that. And then I prescribe intensities on all days. Um, whether it's breathing recommendations like you are not allowed to be out of breath today or you can be breathing hard but not gasping or you have to be able to talk the whole time or giving them RPE or even actual paces to some people on certain days. It's I try to make sure there are guardrails in place so that no matter what we do right or wrong, we're not accumulating too much stress. Nice. That's, that's good. Looking back, I had a, a very good high school coach that really did a good job at teaching us to control that. And like on our easy days, he was, he would tell us, he's like, if you are doing, you know, feeling X, Y, and Z when you're done, he's like, you've gone too fast. And he really did a good job of back of backing us down and just making sure we were controlled on our easy days. And naturally in high school, you don't appreciate, appreciate that, but right. you know, as a coach now, I definitely appreciate what he instilled in us at that young age. That's so good because especially at a high school level, coaching is hit or miss. You either have someone who's enthusiastic about it, but has no experience, or you get someone who knows what they're doing. And to have that early on is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. We were also lifting in high school too, which was not common. No, no, not at all. I, I can say that I never had it. I had good coaches, but I never had someone talk about the different effort levels on easy days. Uh, even throughout college, even five years of college athletics, it never once came up. Just crazy. Like just knowing what we know, it's just crazy. It is. And yet it makes sense in a weird, almost perverse way where they know, like I've got a 12 man squad and we're going to throw a dozen eggs at the wall and the five that don't crack are taking me to nationals. (laughs) You know, and they, they may love and care about you, but they also know that this process will get results out of some people. And it keeps, it keeps people from having to go outside their comfort zone and, and really fine tune their individualization, I think, which doesn't happen a ton at high school and college level because of the numbers people are working with. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. When kind of transitioning into OCR, obviously there's a lot of running that's involved in OCR, but there's a lot of other things as well. 
how do you make sure that you do address the running aspect, but also address the obstacle strength training aspect as well without overworking people? You know, that's been a, a 10 year journey. <laughs> I would say that from the beginning to the end, I would still categorize myself as a running based OCR athlete and coach that that drives everything I do, but I am a proponent of lifting and, um, for anyone who can mentally and physically handle it of lifting heavy. I think that that is one key component to being able to handle the stresses of an OCR race and also just for longevity and injury prevention. But I think that that heavy lifting has its place for most people. Some just don't want to. And at that point, it's not as beneficial, but then also doing skill days. I think skill work is just paramount for an OCR athlete. Um, whether that is in the form of heavy carries sprinkled in on run days or actual like wall or rig technique days thrown in and then some hard quality days that are almost like simulations. Um, having those all in there is a must, but I think everyone knows that. It's the process of finding out, all right, we'll start with a small dose. What do you respond to? Can we add a little more rather than jumping in full on and then finding out, okay, we've done way too much of everything. We're just burnt out. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. What does, obviously it's going to vary based on people's training schedules and racing schedule, but how do you work in like a taper into what you're doing? So especially if like this time of year or right now where it's like, there are no races, we're honestly training for anything specific right now. Um, how do you make sure you're not just ramping up to people too much and not giving them that recovery that they need? I basically have two styles of training plans that I write. The first is the classic periodized build where people have uh, uh, either a season or a goal race that they're getting ready for and anywhere from one to three peaks, if you will, throughout the year. And th those are kind of easier when you just decide this is when we're ready, then you can just count backwards from there and say, this is when we start deloading and sharpening. And that's easy because you, you do that in every sport, but it's the other ones in our crazy sport where people race 20 to 30 plus times a year. That gets tricky. And so for those, what I like to do is sit at more like that 88 to like, I mean, this is, these are very precise numbers and they're not in reality, but like that 88 to 92% of maximum effectiveness and just sit in that zone for a large portion of the year and deload slightly with like soft reset weeks from like, you know, every two or three months and then have the ability that like, I'm always at around that 85 or 90% effectiveness and I can sharpen within two or three weeks for any events I need. So for those, it's less about accumulating a ton of fatigue. Like I would periodize and then really back off and arrive rested and sharp. And it's more of towing that line of, almost in really good shape, but not fully there and just maintaining it all year long until a big event comes up three weeks out, we sharpen up, take a mini reset after, and then get right back to hanging up at the upper eighties, lower nineties. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good way to, um, especially if every like two, three months you're doing a little bit of a back down. I think that's a really good way to prevent that overtraining aspect that can happen. Cause um, like I know myself, if I don't take that time every, usually about three or four months is my breakdown that also I'll have that week mm -hmm. of like, okay, it's time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and throughout those, I still like doing mini 
like mini periods of periodization where like the overall volume might not change, but there might be more of a threshold emphasis for four to six weeks at a time or a downhill emphasis, or, you know, for some people, a spaced out version of like a VO2 max block where instead of hitting it once or twice a week, we might hit it once every nine days or something where you're getting the stimulus enough to really be improving, but not enough to like, you know, over ripen the fruit and then it drops off the tree and you're in the middle of the season and you're not close to when you should be sharp. So many periodization, like micro cycles in there. I like doing it. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. That's really good. I know we talked on the phone um, prior to this about how you work with just really preparing people for the demands of the race. And that's how you really think about programming. Um, I guess, what does that mean for you and how does that play into how you program for people? What I really like to do is try to avoid the common pitfall, which in endurance sports seems to be training for the wrong fitness measures um, where some people might think like, I need to raise my VO2 max on this test by six points, or I need to get my 5k down to this, or I need, I, I really want to, I'm doing a beast. So I like, I really want to be in 240 marathon shape. Cause then I'll know I have the endurance rather than preparing for the actual demands of the actual race you're about to do. And, and it's so easy because most of us don't have normal benchmark tests that will prepare you for if, if we it was OCR, the Killington beast, you know, versus the Jacksonville sprint, Jacksonville sprint, you might look at it and be like, it's a 5k flat race with 10 feet of vert. I need to be in the best 5k shape possible. You lower your 5k pace down as fast as you can get it. You know, let's say you were a 17 flat runner and suddenly you're at 1630 and you're like, yes, I'm so ready, but you got faster by losing a little bit of strength and some of your obstacle proficiency and you suddenly realize, well, it's still a 5k race with 25 obstacles and I don't need flat 5k speed as much as I needed a lot of OCR transition work. And so sometimes I think we just get caught up on the wrong measurement tool. So what I like to do is I like to build everything backwards, pick out what the race is, identify what your actual metrics need to be for that, and then just program if that's 20 weeks out and we're in week one, what do I need to do reverse engineering that to get there? And so for like a Killington, for example, I would, I go back to the last couple of years of GPS data on Strava and my own, if I've run it and I say, all right, by September 21st, we have to be able to handle 5,000 feet of vert and drop in a race. And we have to be able to handle calorie intake for four hours. And we have to be able to handle um, a, potentially a double sandbag, but you know, six to eight minutes of a, of a sandbag carry and six to eight minutes of bucket carry when you're already an hour into a race. And then those give you real easy things to back down. And then you can look at the top 10 finishers, GPS data and be like, all right, on the flats, we just need to be able to run on technical terrain, 630 pace after an hour of racing, after we've been climbing and descending. And now you have like five different really actionable points to work backwards from rather than saying, I'm going to get a 1.5 on the treadmill challenge and I'm going to run a half marathon in an hour 30 and then I'm ready for Killington. Let's take a quick break to talk about zero shoes. You know, I love being barefoot. I am barefoot as much as possible, but when you're out in public, sometimes that's frowned upon. And when you're walking around on concrete and asphalt, in the Phoenix summers, it's highly unsafe. 
that's when zero shoes comes in handy. These shoes allow my feet to be as barefoot as possible to allow my feet to still work like they were made to work. And the great thing about these shoes is they last. They have a 5,000 mile sole warranty, meaning you rarely have to replace these shoes. And they have a wide range of options. So whether you're looking for sandals, something for casual wear, or something for your sports or work, they have you covered. You can go check them out at zero shoes. That's spelled X E R O shoes.com slash go slash get your fix PT. And you can find all of my partnerships at get your fix slash partners. And now back to our conversation. What do you do for training elevation for people who live in flat areas and just don't legitimately don't have access to those hills? It's like, I think the single greatest um, weakness that people in this sport face, your biggest handicap is where you live. So you're Phoenix, right? Yeah. And I'm Milwaukee, you know, sea level, no mountains. So you and I both have to deal with this and, and you have to get creative. So like the, obviously the best thing you can do is buy an incline trainer. I shouldn't say obviously, but in my opinion, a treadmill that goes above 15%, is probably the most useful tool an OCR athlete or any trail running mountain racing athlete can buy. Um, but that only gets you half of the way there. It doesn't help with descending at all. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in heavy dragging and pulling, um, whether you have a sled to push and pull or a tire to pull behind you, but just by the nature of having to put out force into the ground, it does really simulate running uphill. And especially the heavier it gets, the more you lean into it. And then the stress and the angle of stress on your calves and Achilles and soleus really mimics running up a 20 to 40% grade if you're leaning into it. So I think that addresses the front end of it, but then finding your best possible hill and ensuring that you're running downhill intervals, I think is invaluable because it's the downhills that lead to cramping and lead to people imploding, just not being able to handle all that impact. And so like for where I live, um, I currently don't have a hill that rises more than 84 feet over a quarter mile. And so I find a concrete version of that and I put on racing flats and I do downhill intervals. Um, it doesn't help me with technical work or really steep, but it does give me the most downhill pounding I can possibly take. And I find if I can do that eccentric landing every 15 to 20 days that I may not be the best downhill runner I can be, but I can handle pounding of downhill. And then, you know, finding ways in the gym, weighted step ups, um, deficit box jumps, things like that, that can work on the landing and the power that needs to get up. And then, you know, a parking garage, if you can find that or staircases, you know, whatever you can do to get up and down. Yeah. I, I think people train or, you know, it's a lot easier to train that power aspect. And really, like you said, the pushes, pulls, that sort of thing. And, but I think people forget that so much of, or just don't know that so much of that damage and that soreness and that cramping does come from that downhill and having to control that. And, um, it is an aspect that people just don't train cause they just like, Oh, it's just like, I just go downhill and it's easy. Yeah. One thing I did in prepping for a Killington race, um, while living in Milwaukee was I would put a weight vest on and I would do box jumps, drop to the bottom, spring up like 20 reps on one foot, 20 reps on the other, 20 reps, both foot, 
and then the front of the box jumping backwards. And I'd finish with about 50 total reps and hop right onto the incline trainer and then do my uphill rep and just try to get that ability to fill my quads up with blood, have some muscle damage, and then try to access my running afterwards. And that kind of work, it's, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation to bombing down a mountain and going up, but it's a whole lot better than never feeling that feeling and then getting to race day and being like, oh, my uphills are great. One descent in, you're like, and my legs are gone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We know we want to train on or really work on hitting our weaknesses and we really want to mm -hmm. focus on that. Um, but we also, there's so many aspects, aspects of OCR that we also don't want to lose what we have in certain areas either. How do you make sure that you still are maintaining those strength aspects that your athletes have without or while also training those weaknesses? That's that's one of the trickiest parts of our sport, I think. I mean, other than finding ways to get on terrain that you don't live near, how do I balance all the needs of it? And um, what I like to do is I work off two-week microcycles. I generally start people on two quality workouts per week, which is less than you'd probably find a lot of places, but I try to, to make sure that those are really quality. But so I look at it as if I, I have four quality workouts per microcycle. Um, at least one of them has to be working on your strength and at least two have to be working on your weakness. And then that, that fourth is your floating. If, you, if you're adding a third skill, or if you're trying to really work on a weakness, or if you're gonna combo the two together into one session. But the percentage of those four is kind of how I determine how much emphasis we're giving to, let's say it's foot speed. Someone's just insanely slow, but they have great endurance. I might even have two to three um, quality speed um, sessions or sessions that contain speed throughout that four day or that four block microcycle. Um, whereas if it's something like compromised running, you know, the ability to run after hitting an obstacle or a carry, there might be a version of that in three. You could even put it into four workouts if it's in a, a small proportion, but that's how I start. How much of the actual quality work that we're doing contains those skills and making sure that nothing's ever gone. I believe in adding pieces to the puzzle rather than swapping pieces. So like I'm one of those people that like speed work even in the base building, even if it only shows up as eight to 10 hard strides or 200 meter um, sprints at the end of a, of a easy run, but there's always some speed so that it never goes away and you can always sharpen it up when you need to. And the same thing for carries and the same thing for long runs and the same thing for threshold work. All the pieces I try to keep there year round I just lower and raise the percentages based on what's needed or if I'm trying to take time away. But the, the second thing I like to do is combo workouts. I'm a big believer in combining multiple pieces into a workout. So I, I assume that, you know, you're, you're a coach. You, one of the big things you hear is I just don't get settled in until a mile or two into the race. I struggle. I'm so far out of it after the first mile that I can't finish. And no matter what I do after that, I'm never in the race. And so a standard threshold session or a speed session, I might add in um, a fast start to that workout where it's one mile for a time or 90%, you get five minutes recovery and then you do your workout. Or if you struggle with carries, you say as you were doing a, a standard eight by thousand meter workout, you might hit three of them. Then that fourth rep has to be broken up into let's say half distance, but with carries. So quarter mile carry, quarter mile run, quarter mile carry, quarter mile run, quarter mile carry. 
and now the rest of your workout continues. So you're adding pieces of those other components into a standard workout and, and making sure that you, you still stay sharp on your carries, but it's a speed work day or staying sharp on your speed on a hill day, finishing a, a hill day with some hard quarter miles or something like that. Yeah, that's all I, I personally love training like that. And I program like that a lot too, is mixing up that running in different movements, especially carries or um, there's a fairly steep but short hill not too far from where I live. And so I'll go do like five hill repeats and then a carry and then like five hill repeats and then, you know, something else. And yeah, it's just such a good way to really train those different systems and really train yourself to be able to move from a running act from running into an obstacle or an activity too. Yeah. It's, it's invaluable to our sport. And while we have the challenge of fitting in more pieces, we also have the luxury of not having to be like the best in the world at one thing and one thing only. Like we were training a road 10k runner, a marathoner, there's just not room in your schedule to work on so many other things where in our sport, you can work on other things and it strengthens the alternate skills that you may not even be working as much that day. How do you address um, obstacle proficiency for people who don't have access to obstacles or um, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's tricky depending on their prior experience level. If they just have no background in this, then immediately I think raising your overall power output is helpful so that no matter what you're doing, it's taking less out of you and you can get back to your running. But then also finding some way to simulate the things that you are terrible at. Uh, one thing I find among female clients especially uh, are the eight-foot walls are really tricky. The seven-foot walls, the taller walls that maybe they can get their fingers up over the edge and they can do pull-ups and they can do things like that. But once they're just totally dead hanging from their fingertips, they struggle to get over the wall, even if they have the strength to do it. And so finding ways to simulate that at home, whether it's uh, hanging from a, a solid cord door and doing pull-ups flat against that where you can't kip, you have to work on that crimp grip and getting work, wiggling your way up and down. Or um, if you're terrible at rigs, but you don't have that, finding hand switches on your on your pull-up bars or, or little things like that, but finding little simulations to improve the skill paired with raising your overall power output. But I'm also a big believer that the less exhausted you are getting to the obstacle, the less struggle you have on the obstacle. So no matter how much obstacle proficiency we work on, I think that raising that aerobic capacity higher instantly makes you better at obstacles because you just get to it in a more competent state of mind and body. Yeah, I totally agree with that. No, I mean, like anything, you can, the less fatigued you are, you're going to comp complete anything better. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you can arrive at an obstacle with not, without being completely exhausted, you are going to do better regardless. Yeah. And that's what I love uh, smaller obstacle races for. I love people getting out there and using them as a workout day and getting time on the obstacles and time on transitions and maybe even going in with like a, a schedule. Like I am running this as a fart lick. Every obstacle is a 30 second acceleration into it as fast as I can get through the obstacle, even if I fail it and a 30 second acceleration out of it. It's a local podunk race. Who cares? You're just going in as a workout and work on those days where you do things way faster or with more risk or with different technique than you would use in a race over and over until race day is now you're under control, but you've got some more tools in your belt. That's a really good idea. I like that.
it's it's honestly it's the way I had to learn it because and that's that's the only reason why I think to use it is because when we first started, Spartan had nine or eleven events in that calendar year, and only two of them were within range of me. But there was like the Dirty Dog Mud Race and Warrior Dash, and so the only way I could prep for Spartan is I went and did three or four locals, and I realized, you know, it's there's only twelve people here. It's not really worth racing, but let's make it a workout day. And by the time I get to a Spartan, I realize, well, I'm way more efficient than I used to be because when I made myself sprint through an obstacle on that local race, now I can hit it at 80% and it feels like a recovery. That's cool. What do you, so I know you and I both agree as far as recovery, that active recovery is the best way to go. That's mm-hmm. just sitting full rest is not ideal. When you are having, taking a recovery day, either for yourself or programming it for someone, what does recovery, a recovery day look like for, for, for you? You know, I sometimes don't practice what I preach. There are some days I'm like, I'm just so sore and tired. This is an off day, but I always come back the day after worse. I just haven't advanced anything. So you're right. I do try to stick to active recovery and I solely program active recovery. The only time I program an off day is if I know that person has an active day happening that day. And then there's just no stress of a workout hanging over their head, but they're going to be on their feet for four hours doing whatever. So we don't have to worry about it. But so my, my typical off day is spent generally I I ride a bike. Um, I find that I, I like biking and that's half the battle of an off day is just doing something you enjoy. And then a small amount of mobility work is generally what my off day looks like. Easy spin or an easy incline hike um, and then mobility work. But um, when the pools are open, I like aqua jogging and I like deep water work a lot. Jogging is so good. We actually, once again, in high school, we did, we aqua jog twice a week just to take that pounding off of our legs. And it was, you had a forward thinking program there. We definitely did. He was phenomenal. This is also why we were, top in the state for many, many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how at a young age, if you have someone at the helm of a program who just builds a tradition like that, you're instantly uh, competitive. Yeah. And it wasn't like any, there was one family who was like, every one of them were really good runners and they're still all really good runners. So there was one group that was very genetic, but other than that, it's not like any of us came into it as phenomenal runners from day one. It was solely his coaching for sure. Yeah. Those people impress me the most as coaches, like professional coaches who coach professional runners are masters of their craft, but it's one thing to take a stud and turn them into world-class. And it's another thing to take someone who's totally raw and shape them. And I, I obviously respect, I get most of what I do from the professional coaches, but I'm in awe of the high school coaches and the college coaches that year in, year out, craft winning teams and good humans out of whatever comes into their door. Yeah. So to kind of start closing this out, what other aspects do you find really important to what you do as a coach that we haven't um, dove into yet? I think one of the toughest things in working with adults is that you, there's just so many other things present in their life, you know, from job to spouse, kids, Um, so many stressors that come along with it and also so many um, past histories that they've had that can lead them into habits or mindsets or mentalities or just the fact that they're an adult and if they get the the notion to do something they're going to do it and so I don't want to say like 
forcing people to get on the page and do what you want them to do, but developing some sort of rapport so that you're both thinking the same thing after a while. Somehow getting people to embrace the principles you want them to embrace and form fit it to their lifestyle. You know, there are some people who are just going to work out three times a day, no matter what you tell them. And finding a way to, to, to mesh your two philosophies together so that they can have their workouts, but control their stress level of the workouts. Um, then the other big thing is um, in our sport, which again is different than most sports, is just the high frequency of racing. I've never seen another sport where you compete January through October, November, or even December every single year. And there are three or four different series going on. And if you're trying to do multiple, you're just racing every two weeks and finding a way to progress someone through a season, despite having to recover every 20 days from a race or 14 days, or some people three, four, five race weekends in a row, that's really challenging. And I can't say I've mastered that, but it's, it's been eye-opening the amount of stress some people can successfully maintain in a race schedule. Things I wouldn't have thought would be possible a few years ago. Yeah, that's pretty – some of the race schedules I see people do and how many races they're doing, I was like, how is how are you functional at this? Like, it's yeah, I, I'm not a responder to recovery, I wouldn't say. I feel like I'm a responder in a lot of areas of training, but – I recover slowly. I get very torn apart by races. No matter what kind of fitness I'm in, I am not useful for at least three days after a race. Like I'm in great shape if I can do a semi-quality workout on Thursday following a Saturday race. You know, and that's a fast recovery for me. So if I'm losing almost a week after every race, it just doesn't make sense to me how people can race three out of four weekends in a month. So it blows my mind. Some people's ability to recover. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. That's for sure. Well, Bracken, if someone wants to reach out to you, has questions for you, where can they find you? Um, right now, the best way is just message me on Instagram or I guess Facebook or email. Um, it's all the same. It's all my first and last name, Bracken Crocker, Bracken Crocker at Gmail or just at Bracken Crocker on social media. Uh, with the with the podcast we're a part of, uh, the Running Public, Kirk and I are painfully building a website. We've decided to go it alone, and it's been a fun challenge, but it's also tedious. So the the website is not ready, but when it is, it'll be the runningpublic.com, and that'll be one stop shop for everything. But until then, I have to keep saying the same awful thing: is I'll oh, just reach out on social media. <laughs> well, luckily, I think where you are. This will not be released for a while because I have a good cue. So maybe by the time this is actually released. If a while isn't over a month, I'm out of luck. Um, I think I actually have a cue of about 10 weeks. So I think oh, maybe I'm going to get it done. I think you might get it done. There's some pressure. 10 weeks. Got to have it done. There is. Honestly, if I don't get it done in 10 weeks, Kirk's going to fire me. <laughs> Rock, and thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I had fun coming on here. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful, I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe, as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, 
and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>